my dear audience, I'm Peter Resnick, and welcome to the Dr. Peter Resnick's Toolbox. I love this network, I have to tell you, because Gary now has hosts of shows uh, who have such different worldviews, and he keeps them all under the same roof, uh, no imposition of anyone. People speak their mind. I was just, I, did this, I didn't intend to start with this, but I was just listening a few minutes before my show um, uh, to Ralph Nader. That's Ralph Nader's show, the former leader of the Green Party. He ran for president, highly intelligent person. And I was thinking how intelligent people can manipulate information and subvert, arrest, make unrecognizable the truth. He was speaking and his guest was speaking about suffering of people in Gaza and it's been happening for years now. But they didn't say anything about who created that suffering. Yes, two million people, more than two million people are cramped in the same place. The same place, that place could be beautiful since 2005. Israel moved out, left of Gaza, left gardens, left beautiful places, taking care of buildings, um, incredible gardens, incredible agriculture. Then billions of dollars poured into Gaza from different countries. They did not use the money to help their people to build, to build Gaza up, like Singapore, like Hong Kong, it could be beautiful places on Mediterranean Sea, but they were building down, creating tunnels, that's where all the money went to. And the leaders of Hamas, they're billionaires, where did they get this money? Anyway, I, I promised myself I will not go there, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. Okay, I received a lot of emails this week. I thank you, those of you who wrote the emails, and thank you for your kind words. Uh, but let me keep the tradition of starting this show with little show and tell. I have two little clips uh, I found on YouTube, which I found kind of interesting. One by Elon Musk. He wrote, Wokeness gives people a shield to be mean and cruel armored in the false virtue. Just take it in, please. I think it's quite accurate. That's my opinion. Another little uh, piece I found, I asked a wise man, tell me, sir, in which field could I make a great career? He said with a smile, be a good human being. There is a lot of opportunity there and very little competition. I think it's so true. The most important is that a person would be a good human being. I think I told you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, when uh, my daughter was not asking me this question, but my son asked me at one point, what, what, would, make me, what, would, what would make you proud of me? What field would you, th would you think that I would go in and you would like be happy um, that I chose that path. And he was maybe 12 or 13 years old. And I said to him, I really don't care if you mow the lawn, 
if you go to law school, uh, if you open a store, as long as you are a good human being. So that's why, by the way, I, I recently, uh, only recently, opened my uh, course. You know, I teach this course for professionals, uh, which lasts a year and a half, teaching them all the tools that I learned over the years. And I used to teach it only to licensed psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, uh, and um, nurses. But two years ago, I opened the course to what is called uh, now a new field, life coaches. Uh, And that's people basically who decided to to be helpful to other people. And some take a course, which is just a certified course, you know, it may be six months, it may be a year, they learn basic nutrition, basic, they still have to study a lot to be um, good nutritionists, but they get uh, basic nutrition and some counseling skills, which also I believe in, are inadequate from what I know, uh, what is available out there. And yet these people want to be helpful to other people. I think that's the most important. If a person is kind, caring, uh, then if they get adequate tools, which I think I'm giving, uh, then that's the most important. In fact, my very best student, I believe, um, um, his name is Chris, and he he owns Midas stores. Uh, he runs businesses, but he studied with me, and uh, he is the best, the best, I think. Uh, so, because he is a good human being, that's I've watched him. I know him for many years, and I would refer to him, um, my client, client, people who call me, um, more than to anybody else. Anyway, let me uh, start answering the emails because there are quite a few of them, uh, and they have a lot of interesting questions. I will read the emails in the order I receive them. Here is the first one. Uh, the email was not signed. Uh, the question is, here what what a person wrote. I get so angry with my mother when she speaks nonsense uh, and my co-workers when they gossip. Well, anger is a punishment we suge- subject ourselves to for someone else's behavior. We subject our mind and body to bombardment of negativity because somebody acted a certain way. I spoke here many times about anger. It's not a primary uh, emotion, like being in awe. You see something beautiful and you go, ah, ah. It's just a natural mental and physical response to something. Or a fright. Fright. You see something moving in in the bushes as you're walking through the forest and your whole whole body jerks. Of course, uh, there are very quick interpretations that are happening in your mind. But it's an appropriate reaction because the message is danger. And then your body reacts to the threat. But anger is a consequence of judgment. It's not a quick reaction to a threat, but a judgment 
which one makes and is confident in the correctness of that judgment, which means the judgment is made and, and the person is attached to that judgment. Like, why is my mother wasting my time telling me all this nonsense about the argument with her neighbor? Or who cares about what you, our boss is wearing today? Why are you whispering behind her back anyway? Doing what your mother does or what your colleagues do gives them meaning. I'm, I'm not going to judge it's a, a high meaning or low meaning, but it gives them meaning. They probably have nothing better to do. That's true. But who are you to take away what is meaningful to them? And you may say, they could do something better with their time, perhaps, or more than likely. But did any of them hire you to be their coach or an advisor? And more than likely, they did not ask you to be their spiritual teacher. They are who they are. When you hear yourself um, judging them, the best is if you interrupt yourself and say, here goes mother, here goes my mother, doing what is meaningful to her. I, I have to tell you, uh, I, I had to deal with it uh, a long time ago. Um, I, my, my mother passed away in 1999. But before that, she was not feeling well, and I lived in Manhattan. But every Thursday, I would go and visit her for years. Every Thursday after work, I would slap all the way to Brooklyn, taking B train, and it would take often like an hour and 25, 20 minutes. And then I would come <laughs> after the full work day. I would come and no matter what the weather was, I would ring the bell. Let's say it's pouring uh, rain. I ring the bell and my mother lived on the first floor. And her door was exactly opposite to the front door. And there was this big lobby of the, in the building. But... She would look through this little window, you know, little uh, window where you can see who is in front of your door. So I would ring my mother's apartment. And then I would know the door is not opening. And then slowly, which means my mother walked to the little window, and then she saw me. And then instead of buzzing me in, she would go open the door and go, with her sleeper in her sleepers across the lobby and because she knows it already me and would go Tietinka, that's my uh, name nickname my mother called me like this and opened the door and in the beginning i said mom you saw that it's me why don't you just buzz me in it's raining ah yes yes the next time i come i ring the bell the door opens she walks Tietinka. And in the beginning, I was getting angry. And, and then I said to myself, you know, I'm Mr. Psychologist. I have, cannot be angry of standing here in front, on the, at the front door. And I said to myself, this is my mother. That's how she is. She is, you know, I'm not going to change a woman who is whatever she was, 78 or 80, then 80, 82. I'm not going to change her. So I have to occupy myself with something. 
So when I decided, rather than waiting till she does, quote, the wrong thing and then being angry at her, I was, as I was coming to build, to the building, closer to the building, I was saying, well, my mother is going to uh, walk, so I will have time. I will ring the bell and I will think about something, about my work or whatever. I would anticipate uh, that event and diffuse the anger by making a commitment to do something for myself rather than against my mother. And I believe that was a similar experience that, that uh, you, the person who wrote the email, um, are having. Uh, it, judgment. Stop judging, accept what is. But remember, you do not have to accept things. Make them part of your life. If there is something you don't like, you don't need to participate, but you don't need to judge people for doing what they're doing. Okay? Now, next email. Uh, hello, Dr. Resnick. I'm re a regular listener to Dr. Resnick's toolbox uh, and very much appreciate in your in-depth analysis of the Torah. I have a very simple but profound question to all who are on the spiritual path. I would appreciate if you address this on the future program. Thank you. And the question, what is not God? And a person signed, Vito. Vito, what a good question you asked. It is a question that the Kabbalists asked thousands of years ago. They asked themselves the same question. What is not God? Since God created all that is, what was before God? And how could or can anything be without God's presence? I will tell, tell you my take on it. Um, think about a woman carrying a baby. Let's say it's a six-month-old fetus. Uh, and this fetus now already has everything. There is a brain development. Um, there is heart pumping, blood throughout the body. There is the digestive system. So is this uh, child independent from the mother? Yeah, he, it's, a, it's a, a live creature. Is it connected to the mother? It's inside of the mother. It receives nourishment of, from the mother. And yet it's an independent being. And how did, was it possible for this being to be? Because it was because the mother contracted herself, basically. She created empty space in which that fetus could be developing. Where that is, the sperm and the egg got together. But it was just very, very, very little thing. You know, just some molecules getting together, cells getting together. But the mother permitted herself to contract, that is, to, to take herself out of that space, to permit that fetus to grow. And by the same analogy, that's what Kabbalists are explaining about God and the creation of the universe. That is, first, God was everything. And we spoke in the first uh, this, uh, uh, dialogue about 
the of the Torah, uh, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. So God was everything, but it wasn't enough for God to be everything, because God still was missing something. And that is God was missing company. God was alone. And in fact, later on, we, we read, uh, God says, it is not good for a man to be alone. And we are an image and likeness of God. So it was not good for God to be alone. So God then, that's what Kabbalists teach, did what is called tzimtzum, literally contraction. God contracted himself. That is, God pulled himself out of a space, a little, very small space. And in it, God permitted the universe to manifest itself. God also created that life. And even more, God created an image and likeness of God, a, a creature, a human being. Just like a woman uh, gives birth to a creature inside of her that is an image and likeness of her. So, the, so the, the, it's a kind of a long answer to your question. What is not God? Well, on the physical level, molecular level, everything, including that space, um, the whole universe also consists of, of God. On the other hand, it's independent from God, just like the fetus is independent. Human beings are independent of God because they were given properties of God, of having the freedom to make choices. So a person can actually vacate himself from God, but ma by making choices that are not godly. And God permits that within God. So, so what is not God is the choices that we make that are against God's will. But on the physical level, we are inside of God even though the, uh, God withdrew himself from this space that where universe was created, but it's still inside of, of God. In fact, and of course, nobody, nobody can know, but the Kabbalists make a supposition. They give this image, but I think it's really uh, a, a guess, and nobody knows exact sizes. But the Kabbalists give this image. Imagine a human being. And that's God. And now make a pinprick on the skin of God, or of a man. A little, little, little dot. So our whole endless universe is that little dot compared to the size of God. But even that, I think it's still a big stretch because the sizes are infinite, infinite. So I hope I answered at least to some degree, uh, Vito, your question. Next email, uh, on another question on the spiritual subject. Why are there seven days of creation, but God was working uh, uh, on creating the world for six days? On the seventh day, there was no creation. Mm, it's a good question. Uh, right. Why is seven days of creation when there was only uh, God was working? It's written for six days and on the seventh day God rested. Well, uh, let me ask you a question: Can 
breathing uh, consists on, only of inhaling? Of course not. One must inhale and exhale. Uh, that will be a full cycle of breathing. Full life is not only about giving, expanding, building, just like yin and yang. Yang is expanding, building, but there is also yin, receptive, right? So the same thing. Full life is not only expanding and giving and building and, and making things happen, like six days a week, but also taking a pause, making space for receiving. So the reason it's, uh, there are seven days of creation because Shabbat, that day of rest, is also God's creation. That makes a full, full uh, week. And each of the days are, are super important and valuable. None is more important than the other. Okay, next email. Hello, Dr. Resnick. Uh, Helen writes. Um, she, she writes some good things about the show and what she learned uh, over this last two years. Uh, it's a lengthy email. And then she writes, at the end of September, you told us about doing the workshop at Gary Knoll's Ranch, titled, titled Keeping Sanity in the World That Went Crazy. You even gave us some exercises to practice. One was about how not to have any enemies. And that was a good exercise. I learned a lot from it. If indeed we were always to see anyone being aggressive toward us as someone who was sent by God to wake us up to something, it turns out... Uh, to be a whole different thing. It changes the way perce we perceive what is happening. Thanks, it really works. But then you stopped sharing with the exercises from the workshop. The last month and a half, the world got even more crazy, crazier than ever. So please keep going. Uh, what else can we do to stay balanced? not to get carried away by worry and anger. Again, anger. Thank you. Well, Helen, thank you for, something, for, for reminding me about my intention to give you, to share with you the whole uh, workshop. I guess I also got carried away. So let's go back to work. I hope other people are also interested in the workshop. Let me, uh, in each show, give you a part of the workshop, okay? And uh, the workshop is about uh, dealing with the craziness of life. So when we embark on any journey, whatever workshop we have, we ask ourselves four questions. The first question is, where are we going? We must be clear, have a vision of what we want to accomplish. The second question, what is the equipment we need uh, in order to, for a trip to be successful? Just like if you go up the mountain, you make sure that you have the right equipment, otherwise you will never get there. 
So the third question, what shape we are in, uh, that is the same analogy with, of the climbing the mountain. If, uh, if you are in, not in such great shape, maybe you need to choose a smaller mountain or maybe you need to build the muscles first and so on. And finally, the fourth question, what attitude and beliefs we need in order to succeed? So let's go step by step. Uh, first question was to know where we are going. Well, we have an answer to that question. To keep sanity in the world that went crazy. That is, to stay balanced and well, physically and emotionally. To be true to our values in the world filled with physical and emotional toxicity. For that, we need to know what our values are. To be clear about our values and to live, to live fully by those values. That will be integrity, to live fully by our values. Because when we are true to our values and things go well, we celebrate both the goodness of what we have accomplished or have and the reaffirmation of the virtue of our values. And if things don't go the way we wanted them to go, we lick our wounds, but still have our values, still have our integrity. But if, God forbid, we betray our values, even if things go well, deep inside we know that we faked it, that we betrayed ourselves in order to get what we wanted. And if things do not go well, and we betrayed our values, we have no accomplishment, and no integrity. We are truly bankrupt. So that is why if you are interested, I will gladly send you the list of values. I believe I already spoke about the values some time ago and even asks, ask you, ladies and gentlemen, to send me a request to send you the list of values. Some people did send the request, but not too many. So here is another chance for you. Send me an email and request, just write, send me 54 values. The email is uh, peter, P-E-T-E-R, uh, 18, Resnik, R-E-Z-N-I-K, at gmail.com. So, and there I have this uh, assignment. You not only, not only choose 18 values out of 54, and it doesn't mean that you live by those values. Some, by some you may be living, and some you may be aspiring to live by. But you choose 18, and then I also ask you to place them in hierarchy of priorities, as which one is the most important, and so on. And then, next to each, I want you to rate on the scale from 1 to 10 to what degree you are living that value. For example, if you if you choose one financial independence and you are really doing very well so your rating would be nine or ten or, or eight but let's say another value you choose is safety and you are really not in a in the right place in life so you write safety uh, 
four, three, whatever it is. So, and then if you send me your list and you ask me to, uh, you show which ones are kind of lagging behind, I will be able to say, okay, Jim, okay, Susan, or you, you can ask me not to give your names. Here's what you do to move forward with this particular value to to make it uh, shine in your life so you could live by that value to full extent that is to the number 10 the best of course if you would send me the your work and then call in because then i can ask you questions about what field you are in and how then i would be able to give to tailor uh, my my instructions to your individual need so the second we, we spoke about the what we need to respond to the second tool that we need is to have equipment to know equipment that we'll be using on our journey in uh, if you if you still remember the journey is keeping sanity in the world that went crazy so the tools which we'll use is the tool of reason uh, will that will be required you make willful decisions imagination that you're already familiar with and i've been speaking about imagination here for a long time and night dreams i ask you all to write down your night dreams and again we have the last uh, show of the of the uh, month we talk about night dreams if you choose then what shape you are in to, we need to know what shape we are in in order to uh, to deal with all these issues, uh, the craziness of the world. So how will you know what shape you are in? Uh, well, if you carry with you anger, resentment, guilt, remorse, you're in bad shape. It compromises your mental, emotional, and physical well-being. So my advice would be, again, this is your, uh, your assignment. If you want to participate in this process, write two, uh, on two sheets of paper, write with paper, don't print it on your cell phone, one list of all the hurts, all things that you feel, you still cringe when you think about them from in the reverse chronological order from the most recent that you can remember to the earliest you can remember and then write all the things you feel guilty about on two separate sheets and um, write them and and then you don't need to send them to me but i need to know that there are people who did this assignment and i will tell you what to do with this assignment so please write to me in the email i did my hurts and guilts please talk about it so then the next show i will talk about what to do with those hurts and guilts remember i will not ask you to reveal it n not on the radio show not not to your friends or family only you know them and you will know what to do with them but i need to know that there are people who are interested so they wouldn't be wasting my time if nobody sends it to me. So all you need to do is to send an email and say, uh, please talk about it. And finally, we, as I said, we, we need one more thing, and we need to have uh, pos pos the right attitude. 
uh, the attitude that we actually can accomplish what we want to accomplish, that we can master um, uh, anxiety or whatever negative emotions we feel now in the world that went crazy. So, and if thoughts come to you, I give you a very simple technique. If thoughts come to you, uh, oh no, no, nothing will work for me. Oh, this is the, this is impossible. All I want you to do is to say, "Oops, that's it." You interrupt yourself, interrupt yourself, and say, "I am on. I'm taking a break from this negativity." And then think of what you could do. Uh, to make things better. That is, uh, you always want to interrupt, um, to interrupt the flow of negativity. Okay? Uh, let me see what else I want to tell you today, because uh, next time we'll continue talking about it, but I want to, to do other things as well. Uh, yeah, let me, yeah, let me tell you, I want to, I want us to focus uh, uh, this week on overcoming several addictions. So that probably would be a good assignment, because with this addiction, it's very difficult to be balanced. The first addiction is to deny responsibility for our contribution to the craziness around us. That is, we are not victims. One way or another, we contributed to it. So, everyone, everyone can learn a lesson from anything that happens. So, if something drives you crazy, something bad is happening, if you have time, or if you fail, make space and time for it, you have to ask, what is the lesson for me in this? Uh, remember Italian, uh, wonderful Italian psychiatrist, Roberto Assagioli, I believe I quoted him one time on this show, uh, said, what you, what you identify with controls you. What you disidentify yourself from, you can control. So if you are overwhelmed by, this is crazy, this is terrible, what is happening, you are part of that. But if you say what I just said, what can I learn from this experience? So this is, this, this is an experience, it's not you. It's sim simply an experience that is happening. And you disidentify yourself being as being a part of it. You simply look at it from the outside. Already the anxiety about the experience diminishes. Uh, the, the other uh, addiction we have is addiction to fueling uh, and making stronger that which is repugnant to us. And along with it, depleting our energy. You understand? Something is terrible, something is bad, something is unpleasant, and we are fueling it by giving it attention. Meaning, by thinking about it, uh, going over it, over it. Uh, I remember how the whole nation was traumatized when September 11 happened, and they were flashing this over and over on TV, these horrible images of people jumping out of the windows and, and towers collapsing. I believe it was, they did a big disservice. 
it happened. We were aware of it. But seeing that negative, this, this horror just depletes our energy and it doesn't do anything, anything good for us. So when you think, and today, this morning, I saw somebody who said to me, my, my wife doesn't sleep nights, you know, she uh, is constantly on Instagram and, and gets these images of what's happening. Um, it's, it's a woman who has a lot of relatives in Israel, um, and she's constantly like um, receiving uh, like pictures from her relatives, from who some of them lived in uh, even in areas where which were affected. Uh, none of them was actually killed or kidnapped, uh, but but she doesn't sleep, and she's worried now about our children and. She's tormented, and, and she's making me crazy. And I said, you, she, she needs to stop it. You have to insist that she stops, because she already knows what happens. And now it became an addiction, and uh, an addiction fueling that misery inside of you. Now, okay, you know. You know on whose side you are. You know what was done. You know what was done to your family. This is it. So act. Do what you can do. But don't... Go, don't go back to the same images. Nothing good comes out of it. And the third addiction is to to do affirmations to our misery. If you keep saying, I have a bad knee, or my knee hurts, you reinforce that hurt. My teacher of Tai Chi used to say, energy flows where attention goes. You fuel that which you bring attention to. Uh, instead, if something hurts, you don't want it to hurt. So you do not want to reinforce that pain. So something happens and you say, I'm working on healing my knee. To achieve that, we need to pause. So remember I gave you all these stopping exercises. You need to learn when something happens, you step back. You need to have few seconds to think, to to recalibrate, we to change your habitual way. Ah, oh, look at the oh my oh I'm suffering. Oh, I'm in pain. The moment you catch yourself, you simply pause, stop, and say, "Oops, I am working on becoming comfortable." Not even I'm working on getting rid of pain on becoming comfortable. And then you can still do whatever you need to do to address the problem. Uh, I don't have now time to tell you, but there is research. I'm not, talk, it's, I'm not making it up, or it's not even my personal experience. There is enormous amount of research done just on that, on how much our thoughts affect our bodies. Time is running, so let me, let me uh, address something else. I will start now with emails. But Juna from the Bronx called last week and uh, almost reprimanded me for not talking about Edgar Casey. Thank you, Juno, because you're right. Edgar Casey was an absolutely incredible person. And I want, I want those of you who do not know about him, I want to mention a few things. I'm not a specialist on Edgar Casey. I just know about him. He lived 67 years and was born in 1877, died in 19. 1945, he was an American clairvoyant who spoke from what he calls his higher self, 
in a semi-trance-like state. Uh, his words were recorded by his family and friends. Uh, Casey would answer questions on a variety of subjects, such as healing, reincarnation, dreams, afterlife, past life, nutrition, and even the future events. Um, Casey was a devout Christian and Sunday school teacher. From what I know, he did not charge. He did readings, you know, for tens of thousands of people. He never charged his money, uh, money for it. He felt it was a, a gift uh, from his subconscious. And in uh, he was a remarkable, really, healer. Uh, though God heals, but he was conduit. Uh, he would go into his trance and say exactly what a person needs, needed for healing, whatever remedies they were required. And people were getting well. Uh, in 1931, he founded a non-profit organization called the Association of Research and Enlightenment. Um, and he was recording all his seances. Uh, and the center still exists. They have an incredible library, a digital library, where all his um, readings are stored. One can search the files and find the reading for the treatment of virtually any illness. In fact, today I spoke to someone and I asked, um, I, I, I spoke about Casey because I said I will be talking about Casey um, on my show. And, and he told me, oh, oh, I had some problem with my stomach and I went on um, this website and I searched for this particular problem. I took the remedy and overnight I was cured. So there is a biography of Casey written by Thomas Sugru, Thomas S-U-G-R-U-E. The biography is called There is a River. If you are interested in exploring the work of Edward Casey, Edward Casey uh, check out his website. It's Association for Research and Enlightenment. Um, there is one more thing I wanted to tell you, since we are already on the subject of Casey. There was another person who uh, I had the privilege to meet, actually, and some believed that he was as accurate, though he was not a healer, he was not accessing remedies. But in terms of visions, he was as accurate as Edgar Casey. His name was Inga Swan. Uh, Inga Swan was born in 1933 and died in 2013. He was a good friend of Dr. Gerald Epstein, uh, who was my mentor and a friend for many years. And Inga Swan once gave uh, a talk at Jerry's house. So that's how... I met Inga Swan. So he was a psychic, he was an artist, and a writer, uh, and he was a co-creator of a project of remote viewing. Uh, it was called Stargate Project. So uh, he also was, uh, he was, became so known that CIA became interested in his work. Um, so he would search uh, through in his mind through uh, the Soviet 
uh, landscape and would tell the CIA where the, the nuclear stations or, or nuclear stockpiles were. And of course, they didn't rely only on uh, Ingo Swan, but he was confirming what they knew through their intelligence. So at uh, one time, and that's, that's something that uh, Ingo Swan spoke about it once, in, in 1972, uh, association of uh, American Association Society for Psychic Research did an experiment where they placed they uh, placed Ingus one in a room, and there was a, a like an armor or uh, I don't remember what it was. I, uh, he described like a closet, which was very, very high, very tall, all the way almost up to the ceiling. And they placed on that on top of that closet, eight objects. And so they, then they brought Inga Swan into the room, placed him in a, a chair, put all the electrodes, you know, plugged him in and, and uh, started the experiment. Basically, they asked him to get out of his body. And, of course, he was observed through one-way mirror and and to go out of the body and to describe objects. They didn't say how many objects there were, but to describe objects which are placed on top of the closet. And he described, he actually had a, a notepad and he drew them. And when then they examined them, uh, Dr. Orsis, who was uh, running that experiment, stressed that uh, all of these objects were accurate and that the odds of Swan being correct were 40,000 against one for him be just like this randomly. Um, guessing. So he was a very interesting person. He wrote a number of books. The, the, one of the first books I read was The Great Apparitions of Mary, an examination of 22 supernormal uh, appearances, and, and that's appearances of Virgin Mary. And then he wrote a book um, called Everybody's Guide to Natural ESP, Unlocking the extrasensory power of the mind. Uh, then uh, I, I read that book, um, Nostradamus Factor, then psych Psychic Sexuality. So explore him, Ingus one, I-N-G-O, uh, and the last name S-W-A-N. He was quite an extraordinary person. Oh, one thing he also was telling us, during that lecture, that he was participating in in uh, remote viewing of the moon. Now, what I'm about to tell you will sound crazy, and you know, take it for what it is. I'm telling you what I heard from India Swan. But he did this research for for CIA. Uh, he did remote viewing uh, viewing of the moon. In fact, he wrote a book. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, I. I let me think of what the name. Yeah, I think. Oh, yes, the book was called Penetration. 
yeah, Ingus one penetration. And there he describes doing the remote viewing of the moon. And apparently there are creatures, he says, living inside of the moon. And but they highly evolved mentally. And at one point he got scared because as he was moving through the corridors of whatever was under the under the in this under the surface of the moon, somebody who was also psychic like him, but from the other side, spotted him and kind of created an alarm, uh, warned others that they had been watched, and Ingo had to quickly remove himself. And then he was uh, concerned that they may attack him, but it never the attack never happened. So I know it sounds a little bit off, but. Uh, it is what it is. That's what I heard from Inga Swan. Anyway, <laughs> this uh, we didn't even start talking about our main subject that we've been uh, talking about. The exp- and now we go back to the in-depth exploration or inquiry of the greatest book ever written, the Torah. Look, it took us 50 minutes <laughs> for me answering the uh, emails and talking about Edgar Cayce and Inga Swan. So I want to hear from you if, if you want me to go off the main subject and you want me to talk, spend time answering the emails and so on. I, I really appreciate your feedback and look forward to your emails. Again, it's peter18resnik at gmail.com. So, so far we came, we crawled slowly up to the Chapter 12, last time, last week, we spoke about um, the Torah speaking, the chapter 11, basically giving you all genealogy of, of uh, offsprings of Shem, one of the sons of Noah, all the way to the, to the birth and then life of Terach, who became the father of Abraham, not Abraham, Abraham, uh, the name of Abraham was changed to Abraham much later. But basically we have Abraham, uh, um, Terah had three sons, and one of them died, um, and but he had a son, Lot, and then uh, Abraham was alive, and Terach, the father of Abraham, took two of his sons, Nahor and um, Abraham, with their wives and his grandson Lot, and they all left the place where they um, Abraham was born. The place is modern in modern place, it's, uh, and it was called then as well. In Iraq, it's called Ur or Ur. Uh, in in twelfth chapter, begins with Abraham hearing the voice of God. But before we go to twelfth chapter, I want to tell you a little story. Uh, it's not in in the Torah, but it's midrash. As I told you, it's part of the the Hebrew teachings, part of the Hebrew Bible. It consists not only of the Torah five books of Moses, but Midrash and 
the books of judges, the books of kings, and, and psalms, and so on. So Midras is uh, uh, contemplation or attempts of our sages to expand on the Torah. Why things happened the way they did. Why did Terah have to leave Ur or Ur? Because it was a, quite a, a comfortable place with already multi-story buildings. So it was uh, in Mesopotamia, and it's quite uh, was quite an advanced civilization. So why did he did he live? And uh, Midrash says, tells this story that Abraham was an inquisitive uh, child. From young age, he was questioning the reality, the universe, why, and God. And of course, Ur at that time was uh, a place for many gods. People built little idols and worshipped them. And of course, there were big gods like Baal and, and Asarta and so on. Uh, and the father of Abraham, Terach, was, was actually had a store where he was selling the idols, uh, little statues and, from wood and, and ceramic or clay. And one day, uh, the father came home and he saw all the idols broken and one idol uh, had a hammer. Uh, placed on right on his lap on this little idol and Tarek looked and screamed what happened how did all these idols that I'm selling broke and Abraham said to his father well you see this idol with the hammer he just got angry and smashed them all and the father said don't tell me this this is just a piece of clay how could you do it it's nothing a piece of but a piece of clay. And Abraham said, Father, let your ears hear what your mouth just said. And that is that it's just nothing but clay. So how can you call it God? And so Terahan understood that, you know, he could no longer do this. Uh, Terahan understood that he was involved like in, in just selling nonsense. And so he picks up his whole family and they... Uh, go to a different place, Aram, uh, and there eventually Terak dies. And Abraham, we're now reading chapter 12, and the Lord said to Abram, not Abraham yet, chapter 12 begins, and the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your land, from your birthplace, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. Here, maybe the answer to, you know, why Terah left you, because that's where Abraham was born. Abram was a delusional schizophrenic by today's standards. And the first symptom of delusional schizophrenia is hearing voices, and yet both father and the son did not think that Abram was delusional schizophrenic. Of course, there was no term, there was no diagnosis at that time. But Abraham perceived something that was true. He recognized that the voice was the voice of the real 
God. And so, and the interesting thing is that the voice is saying, leave your father's home. Leave basically everything that is familiar to you. And at that time, Abraham and, and Terah, they were people of means. And yet, God is not telling Abraham where to go. God is inviting Abraham to make a leap into the unknown and to trust that this voice will keep the promise because the next line, the second verse in, in the 12th chapter goes, and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and you will uh, aggrand, you will aggrandize and I will aggrandize, that's the word, uh, translation, aggrandize, make great your name, and you shall be a blessing to the nations. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. That comes a little later. But basically, there is a, there is a voice that says Abraham to leave his home, leave everything known and familiar with the promise that he will get something. So, 99.99% of people would think, what is this, you know, in my head? Something is not right for me, maybe it's too much heat. But yet, Abraham hears the voice, and as, as my teacher of blessed memory, Colette, used to say, nothing of value happens unless you make a leap into uncertainty. And all of us, ladies and gentlemen, all of us, one time in life, or more times in life, sometimes we don't listen first time, but it comes again. We, like Abraham, are called by this invisible pull from inside, the voice or, or feeling to go into the unknown. We either uh, get scared or think a little later, or we make a, a leap. And very often we discover something that we couldn't imagine possible. So I will have to end our uh, meeting today with these words and we will continue our journey. I'm looking forward to getting your emails. Um, thank you for being with me today and uh, be happy. Peace to all who want to live in peace. <laughs>